As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Alex, and welcome to Barely Braided, where we're taking a deep, deep dive into foster care, adoption, and all things parenting, even the sticky stuff. Episode eight. I am your host, Alex Ellis, and this is a really, really special episode because I have a professional in the area of adoption, foster care, DCS, all of the things. But before we jump into that, I do want to share that today's episode again is brought to you from the Russell Hotel. The Russell is a historic East Nashville church that has been transformed into a beautiful boutique hotel. The Russell's mission is to give back to the Nashville community through their Rooms for Room program donating a portion of their funds from your stay to local organizations that provide a safe haven for those in need here locally. And as always, I am incredibly excited to podcast from here because it's such a beautiful space. And many of you know, if you've listened to the last couple episodes, that we have had some pretty bad tornadoes hit the area in this area specifically. So I was very glad to find that this building had no damage. They lost power for a little bit, but we are now finally back in business. So... On to our guest. I am here with the lovely Miss Ann Austin. And I know a lot of you have anticipated this because I kind of gave some teasers a few episodes back and I've had some messages about people who were very excited to hear from her specifically. And they've sent questions. They've had things that they want to ask her and get her expertise on. So we have a whole roster of things to talk about today. Miss Ann Austin, she has lots of experience. She has experience in DCS and private adoptions. Obviously, she's very knowledgeable about adoption assistance issues. She has 25 years experience as a lead attorney for DCS and more than 10 years experience training attorneys across the state of Tennessee in things like juvenile law, severe child abuse law, termination of parental rights. She graduated from the University of Tennessee College of Law in 1982 and has been licensed to practice since 1983. Wow. Those are some credentials. Hi, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And if you've not been to the Russell Hotel, it is a treat. This place is gorgeous. It is so pretty. I like bringing guests here because I feel like it like ups my credibility just a little bit. Well, I'm really glad that you are here with us today. The first thing, and we didn't really plan to talk about this, so sorry for springing this on you last minute, but I am curious about your background and like how you got started before law school. Is this something that you've always wanted to do? No, actually, I wanted to be a 
veterinarian. And when I was a girl growing up, I was told girls can't be vets, be a nurse or a school teacher. And of course, you don't tell me no. That, that <laughs> makes me more uh, convinced I'm going to do it. However, I do not have a good math background. I could not pass the pre-professional physics to go to vet school. So I was looking around for something to do, and I took the LSAT, and I decided to go to law school. Didn't particularly like law school, but when I took clinic and actually went to court, I realized I have one talent and one talent only, talking. I think you have more than one talent for sure, but talking is probably one of them. I'm very good at that, and, and it has been the perfect career for me. I worked as an administrative judge with the Secretary of State's office for a while, and then my husband worked in, in Cookville, and I found a job working for the department. We were Department of Human Services at the time, then it changed to Department of Children's Services. I got a job with them, and I spent 25 years with them doing the termination side that goes along with adoptions and also providing uh, legal advice to the permanent specialists within the uh, Department of Children's Services who are the ones who, who put together the packet and prepare everything for the adoption and help the foster parents go through and finalize the adoption with their privately retained attorney. Okay, so when you first started law school, did you know adoption and foster care and that sort of thing would be your specialty or did it take you a minute to figure that out? No, it was more chance in the fact that my husband worked in Cookville and I was working in Nashville and we got tired of commuting. So I decided to take the job with the Department of Children's or Human Services at the time, Children's Services. It just fell in place and it's been, I love children. I enjoy when I, because I make home visits to the uh, prospective adoptive homes and get to meet the children sometimes read books to them, things like that. So it's the perfect career for me. And it's been the perfect retirement career. Not that I'm really retired. I still work full time. You're not retired. But I don't work the 60, 70, 80 hours a week that I used to when I worked for the Department of Children's Services. So it's just been the perfect career and it just kind of fell in my lap by chance. So a 40 hour a week for you is your retirement, basically. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> wow. Well, and I know you're still very actively working because you recently helped us with our adoption. Yes. And I found you by chance on a Facebook thread. And I think it was like a Tennessee foster parents or like adoptive parents, something like that. A thread where somebody said, I need an adoption attorney in Davidson County. And I swear there were tons of people that said, Ann Austin, Ann Austin, call her, call her. And so I was like, huh, if she has this many recommendations, I might as well call her. And so poof, here I came out of the blue. Well, I'm very fortunate. I've been um, retired from DCS for as their lead attorney for uh, almost five years now. And I've been doing adoptions since then. And I have a lot of repeat clients. Uh, foster parents tend to adopt children, say, this is it. We're full, no more. And then two or three years down the road, they call me back and say, okay, and we're adopting more children. Can you help us? And of course, I, I love it. I enjoy getting to see my clients again. I, I absolutely love my clients. They're just wonderful, great people, and the kids are great, too. So it's a fun. Are you allowed to say what's the highest number of adoptions you've performed for one single family? Do you remember? Do you know? I am, am getting ready soon. Don't know when because the courts right now have closed down due to the uh, virus threat. But soon I will be uh, finalizing adoption for a family where it'll be number uh, five, six, and seven oh, for wow. their adoption. So um, I've had other children that I finalized adoptions for that they adopted prior to my leaving DCS. So they had other attorneys for that where 
we've had higher numbers. I did an adoption for one family who ended up eventually adopting 11 kids. So Whoa. so, so uh, most adoptions are one or two kids, but a few of them are, are a whole bunch. And they're, you go to their home. Like I said, I do home visits. You go to their home and they're organized and you think it'd be a complete chaos and noise and everything else, but the kids are usually, you know, busy doing different things and, and you know, certain people can just handle a large group like that so well. That gives me a lot to live up to because we just have the two babies right now, our adopted son and then a foster daughter infant. And we're definitely in the chaotic phase. Like there is not a room in my house that I can say is clean. So <laughs> that gives me something to live up to, a goal. Well, if you don't mind, we have a ton of questions and this episode may end up being six hours long, but that's okay. Should we jump into them? Please do. Okay. So we're going to start off pretty basic, hopefully. Can you explain the different types of adoption, meaning like an independent or a private adoption? What's the difference? An agency adoption, DCS, foster, and then what are the pros and cons of each of those types of adoption? So first we're going to divide it by agency and then an independent adoption. Okay. An agency adoption can be one through the Department of Children's Services. You may be a foster parent for a Omnivision Youth Villages, uh, one of the uh, agencies that also provides foster care, but the children are in the custody of the Tennessee Department of Children's Services. That's an agency. By the same token, a private agency that handles finding the children, recruiting the adoptive parents, um, terminating any parental rights, they're still an agency and it's still very similar. So with both of those, the agency will terminate parental rights, either by the parents surrendering, father uh, can find a, it's a legal father, but not biological, a denial of paternity, a putative father can file a or enter into a notarized waiver of interest uh, that can terminate parental rights without going to court. Or you can have a contested termination of parental rights, which could be very simple and very quick, or it can be some like I've had where you have a trial that goes on for more than a week and, and, and lasts a long time. But they will cover all of that. Where it diverges is, of course, to adopt the DCS, you have to become a foster parent. You have to meet all the licensing requirements to be a foster parent, um, including the continuing education that's required. And DCS will determine if the child's eligible for adoption assistance. If they are either active or deferred adoption assistance, DCS pays the attorney's fees, they pay the court cost, and they pay the fee for your new birth certificate. So basically, you don't have any expense in adopting the child. You do select your own attorney. DCS does not, and DCS is actually not allowed by statute to recommend or tell you which attorney to hire. You, you hire that attorney yourself. They can provide you a list of attorneys who are willing to do it, but then there's no cost. Even if the child is not eligible for adoption assistance, uh, if it would create a hardship or delay the adoption, and it's $1,500 approximately in cost, the department can still pay for the, all those fees. So cost is a tremendous uh, advantage for a DCS agency adoption. The disadvantage is that DCS is working to try to return children home. So if you have a foster child placed with you, you have to fall in love with them. You have to treat them like they're your own child, make them part of the family, but you also have to be prepared to give them up because they go home. Relatives also have a priority 
property. So they may go to a relative of the family instead of your being able to adopt them. So I would say that's the only negative from a DCS agency adoption. A private agency is going to terminate parental rights as well. Um, They're going to charge you those fees and it can be expensive to terminate parental rights, particularly if you have a contested hearing, you have attorney's fees, you have court costs. They're going to charge you for that as well. But they'll have the child free for adoption. They'll do your home study, which they'll charge you for as well. That's all part of the fees that go into this. They may pay the birth mother's medical uh, expenses, the child's medical expenses at birth, housing, food, clothing for the mother, things like that. Those are all things that can go into what a private agency charges you. So if you're interested in a private agency adoption, the first place you look is, surprise, surprise, the Department of Children's Services website because they license all the licensed private adoption agencies. And if you go to www.tn.gov forward slash DCS and you look under foster care and adoptions, you will find the agency fee schedule and it will list for the year all the licensed adoption agencies in Tennessee and they put out their fees for various things. And a lot of them they'll say varies so it doesn't give you exact numbers, but that's your big disadvantage there is it's so expensive. But go to DCS first. They also list the international ones, which I know we're going to talk about later, so I won't go into that on that website. So that's a very good place to start your search. Then you can start calling the agencies and questioning them. Find one that is open, transparent, will give you a written fees list, will put everything in writing to you, and also that has a good reputation. There are unlicensed adoption agencies you need to be very, very careful if you used an unlicensed. You don't have the protection of the law if you used an unlicensed agency. So those are agencies. Then you have your private adoption. Those are the most common private adoptions where you do it without using an agency except for a possible home study is a step-parent adoption. And in that case, the home study can be waived, so you can have no uh, agency involved. You would still have to either have the other parent consent to the adoption by the step-parent or terminate that parent's parental rights. So you could have the attorney's fees for just the adoption if they consent, or you could have the uh, attorney fees to go through a contested uh, termination of parental rights. So you're talking about anywhere from $1,500 to maybe four or five, $6,000, or if it's appealed to the court of appeals, $10,000 for that, for your attorney's fees. And then court costs are, are the same for any of these adoptions, except for the contested TPRs. Those can have increased court costs. Grandparent or relative adoptions are another common one where the grandparents maybe take the children and want to adopt them. And again, if the uh, parents consent to the adoption, you don't have to terminate parental rights and that will save you a lot in attorney's fees. If they don't, you have to terminate their parental rights. With a relative adoption, the court can also waive the home study so you can save money not having that. Then you have the independent adoptions like the one that you did where you located the uh, pregnant woman yourself. And I've had several of those where they have known them because of a previous foster care relationship. And in that case, uh, particularly if the parent will surrender, they they can't just go with a consent because it's not a relative, it's a non-relative. So you get a surrender of parental rights. And with the surrender, you have three days for them to revoke it and then it's final and the child's in your guardianship and you can go forward with the adoption. That can be relatively inexpensive if you don't have a contested termination of parental rights, maybe $1,500 or a few thousand, depending on the attorneys, because all attorneys charge different fees. But you do have to have the home study. So you're going to have to find a licensed agency who will do the home study. And those vary anywhere from $1,200 to $6,000, depending on the agency. So you have to pay those. 
Uh, you can, of course, also have the birth mother back out on you and then have expenses you've incurred that you're not going to be reimbursed for. Interesting. It, yeah. And it's very interesting to me, too, when it comes to the independent adoption, like we just recently did, because I didn't understand like all of I mean, I did understand in our specific situation, but I didn't understand, I guess, what the birth mother could ask for or maybe would have asked for in that situation. And so I didn't really know what to expect. And then she ended up not really asking for much at all. And and I don't know if she knew that she could or it was standard that sometimes they do. And so I kind of feel like I got onto this adoption thing very, very reasonable as far as the price. I don't know if I got like a bargain. You, you got a bargain. You <laughs> got a very inexpensive adoption. If you go around telling people what your total cost was, they're going to be very jealous of you because you got a very that. good bargain. Yeah, I hate to say that, but I, yeah, it was very reasonable. And on top of that, you recommended the agency that should do our home study and they were were very reasonable as well. So I got some good advice and also got lucky, I guess. Well, you know how I found that agency, don't you? On that I website. I went to the DCS <laughs> website. I looked at their, and I looked at the fees they charged. And then I started calling uh, when I first started doing adoptions five years ago. I started calling and talking to them and trying to find out which one I thought would be reliable because I'm not going to recommend an agency that's not going to be reliable. And I've used them, um, the same agency, a number of times. They continue to have one of the lower prices for the home study, and they've done a good job on all the cases that I've used them for. So I've been satisfied with their, um, so that worked out pretty well. So that's something as an attorney, I don't just say, oh, you find them, you figure it out. I, I have done a little bit of that work myself to try to figure out who's good, but also reasonably priced. Well, and it's a good opportunity too. We are able to give them a shout out. I know we have listeners in all parts of the United States and even in other countries, but if you happen to be in Tennessee or in Kentucky, I think they do both stay we used Adoption Assistance Incorporated, and I loved the woman that we worked with. She was very thorough, but she also made the process very easy. So a little shout out to them if you're in this area and you need that type of service, feel free to reach out to them. And you can go to the DCS website to get her phone number and address. Yeah, absolutely. Can you repeat that website one more time? Yes, it's www tn.gov forward slash DCS and go under foster care and adoption and then there'll be a adoption agency licensing tab that you're going to have to go to the bottom of the page to search for and then from there you look at the agency fee schedule and that opens up a booklet that lists all of the licensed Tennessee licensed agencies and their fees both for domestic and international adoptions. Oh, interesting. Okay, great. Yeah, that's really good information. The next question I feel like you provided quite a bit of insight into this, but I'm going to ask it anyways, just in case there's anything you want to add. Um, agency adoptions are typically thought of as much more expensive than DCS or foster or private independent adoptions. Why is that? And where do most of those funds go? The funds go different places for a, we're talking about an agency in the non-DCS, non-public, right. non-public agency. So they can be the for-profit or non-profit agencies. They have to cover their costs, their staff, and their people. They will have to pay attorneys to terminate parental rights before the child's available to be placed with you for adoptions. For adoption, they'll do the home studies. They may pay the 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The mother, her birth expenses, even housing, transportation, there's certain expenses that are allowed under Tennessee law, and this will vary from state to state, and I'm only familiar with what Tennessee law allows, but they may pay all those fees, and then again, they may not pay them. So that's why the uh, the rate will vary from one agency to another. You may be able to find an agency where for $20,000 you're able to complete an adoption, or you may spend $50,000 to complete the adoption. A lot of it just depends on that individual agencies, but there are a lot. And like I said, if you go to that fee schedule, it breaks down the different costs and the different things that uh, you're paying for in order to uh, have a private agency do an adoption for you. One thing that the agency that we used just recently started offering was financial coaching. They had a webinar just the other night and Joel and I attended and it was really helpful. They talked about three different ways that you could fund your adoption if you chose to and they kind of separated it out. They said that it would be good to try to save yourself for a third of the adoption and then another third um, maybe finance it or get some sort of loan and then the third way is maybe like start a GoFundMe or ask for gifts. I don't know. They just they gave a lot of suggestions and I know sometimes people are weary of like asking their friends and family for gifts, but they really said that they have seen some successful campaigns that way. I don't know. It was a nice program to at least be out there and know is available if you need it. Well, it's kind of like weddings now. Instead of getting the toaster and the uh, other uh, kitchen appliances, a lot of couples are setting up funds to fund their honeymoon. And you could set up a fund to, instead of having a baby shower, to help fund that. There are also websites on the internet for grants and loans for adoptions. All I can say about those is just be very, very careful to make sure if you're using something, it's legitimate. You can't trust it just because it's on the internet. It may not be legitimate. Some agencies, particularly the ones that are religiously oriented, will also have funds to help people who meet their religious requirements to to adopt children. So there are avenues out there to help people. Um, I've not had a client who's used any of them at this point, so I can't tell you what's good, what's not good. I just need to tell you to be very, very careful. 
I mean, that's good life advice. Don't believe everything you read on the internet. All right. What is the difference between an open and a closed adoption? Who chooses whether it's open or closed? Do the rules vary by state? And are there repercussions if one side doesn't follow the guidelines after the adoption has been finalized? A open adoption can only occur in a state where the state law allows for an open adoption. And in 2019, Tennessee law was changed to allow an open adoption. The adopted parents have to decide they want to have an open adoption. You cannot force an open adoption. The, the birth family cannot. And what the statute basically says is it has to be a written agreement. It can allow for visitation, other forms of contact, like you can come to the kids' basketball game. Um, it could allow for exchange of pictures. It could allow for providing some medical information and school education and things like that. But it's going to be a written contract and it's legally enforceable. So if you enter into a contract with a biological parent saying that they get to visit once a month for four hours and then you stop that visitation, the parent can go to court and get a court order to enforce it. Once you have a court order enforcing it, if you still don't give them the visitation, then they could take a, a file a contempt petition against you to hold you in contempt. So it is legally enforceable. Only the adoptive parents can file a petition to modify the agreement. So if something happens, and for example, the biological parents are using drugs, they're coming to a visit uh, under the influence, or, or, or something that makes it not in the child's best interest to continue the contact, then the adoptive parents can petition for that modification. The biological parents can't petition to try to get more visitation or get it changed. It's what's in that contract, but it's legally enforceable. So if you don't have a legally enforceable open adoption written contract, you can still allow on your own. Once you adopt a child, they're your child. And just like my children when they were little, if I wanted to let them go spend time with uh, family or friends or whoever, that was my choice as a parent. So you as a parent of the child you've adopted can decide to allow visitation without a written contract. And you could even agree to it morally, say, yes, I'm going to let you have an ongoing contract, but I'm not going to do a enforceable one. So that with those type of situations, the adoptive parents can also end at any time. So if I'm saying, yeah, my, my kids can go visit and stay every other weekend with grandma for the weekend. And then I said, no, nah, don't want them going to grandma's anymore. She's spoiling them too much. I can stop it with my birth children or for my adopted children. So that one is not enforceable. Interesting. Okay. So hypothetically, let's say that I had an adoption agreement with my son's biological family that said they could visit at whatever point, whatever. And the situation arose where I was found in contempt then what? Well, the judge can fine you. The oh. judge could throw you in jail. Oh, on contempt. Um, you know, contempt's serious. You, you don't want to be in contempt. What you want to do is if there's a reason why the child should not be having this contact, um, then you need to file a petition as the adopted parents to go in and modify it, to stop it or, or change it. One of the problems is when kids become teenagers, sometimes they don't want to visit anymore. And yeah. that may become a problem. And in Tennessee, if the child is 14 at the time of the adoption, they also have to enter and agree to the open adoption and the contact will, that will be had after the adoption is finalized. So, And you set it out in detail exactly what you want. And you need to think about it very long and very hard so that you're not in a situation where uh, you've agreed to weekly visitation and then you can never go on vacation. 
you know, you need to make sure it's very carefully crafted so that it protects you so that, you know, if the child's sick, uh, if uh, there's a family emergency, that there are ways that you, without violating the contract, can either cancel or reschedule a visit. So that's something you have to look into very, very carefully. You don't just go in and just throw something down on paper and hope it's going to work for the rest of that child's minority. Okay. So I would imagine as well as visits being included in that type of contract, maybe things like sending photos or emails or like FaceTime calls. Are those things sometimes included in those contracts as well? Yes. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Um, This next question is kind of long, so I might ask it in a couple parts. Um, In a DCS or foster adoption, does the bio family usually have an attorney and who provides the attorney? Is the state provide the attorney or do they pay for it on their own? And are there instances where the attorney is provided or hired, but the attorney doesn't believe the side that he or she is fighting for? Well, let's deal first with who who gets an attorney and how they get them. Okay. You have the right to be represented by an attorney in any legal proceeding. In dependency and neglect cases, if you're indigent, then you can apply to the court for a court-appointed counsel. You can also hire your own attorney. So if you have the money to hire an attorney, you can hire your attorney. But can if, I stop you really sure. quick? You said if you're indigent, what yes. does that mean? Poor, basically. Oh, okay. And it's not necessarily the same standard that you would have to uh, meet to get food stamps or some sort of federal assistance, but you have to show that you're poor and you can't afford. Um, so you have to fill out an affidavit of indigency. You have to ask the court to appoint you counsel. They go over it and they ask you, you know, what's your income? What do you own? If you own property, even though you don't want to sell that property, you might not be indigent, even though you have no income, because you have property that has significant value. So they look at indigency. So you can hire an attorney with your own money and you have in every lawsuit, you have the right to be represented by counsel. Or you can ask for appointed counsel in dependency and neglect. That's juvenile court where there are allegations of abuse or neglect to the child. You're also entitled to court-appointed counsel in any termination of parental rights. Now, there are other cases where you can get court-appointed that I'm not going to go into because they're not really relevant to this one. But in those two cases, you're entitled to the appointed counsel. The attorney who's appointed to represent a client, their job, their duty is to that client. It doesn't matter what they think of a client. It doesn't matter whether they think that client is fit or not. If their client wants to fight DCS or whoever is terminating their parental rights, then their job as an attorney is to represent them to the fullest extent of the law. Now, you can't do anything illegal or unethical for your client. And if your client commits perjury, tells a lie on the stand, and you know they're committing perjury, then you have a duty to immediately ask the court to withdraw. And usually the judge knows, oops, Somebody just committed perjury and the client is trying to get out. So it really doesn't matter what you think of your client or what's best for the child. You're hired to represent that client's interests, just like in criminal court. I mean, it wouldn't be fair to somebody charged with a crime if they only got a uh, good representation when their attorney thought they were innocent. You know, even if you're guilty, you're entitled to that. Sometimes they say zealous reputation. Here again, you don't commit fraud. You don't uh, violate the law. You don't do anything unethical for your client, but you do represent them fully. So I know you have another question about the guardian ad litem, so I'll answer that in a minute. But you had also asked in the question about a adoption attorney. 
So if I'm hired to be an adoption attorney for an individual, whether it's a DCS foster parent or agency foster parent or just a private attorney, I have an option in most cases, well, in all cases with an adoption because it's it's not something where uh, the court would appoint someone to take the case or not take the case. So if I get someone and, and I just feel like I don't want to do it and I've never had this happen, I have not done a single adoption where I've not felt good about the adoption and that it was the best thing for the child. But that's something that could happen. My duty is to the adopted parents. And that's why a guardian ad litem for a child really shouldn't represent the foster parents in doing an adoption as well, because as a guardian ad litem, your duty is to the child, but then when you represent the adopted parents, your duty is to them. So it really doesn't matter whether I, as an adoptive attorney, think you're fit and proper to adopt, or if I think it's in the best interest of the child. And that could be different. You could be very fit and a good person, but have a child that has just all sorts of issues and problems that you're not equipped to to handle doesn't matter what I think. The best interest of the child is looked after by the agency who's doing the home study and is doing the supervision of the child in the prospective adoptive placement, not by the attorney. Our duty is to our client and the Board of Professional Responsibility could take action against us if we do not represent our client's interest. Okay. So you talked about the guardian ad litem and that was actually our next question. So in our little world, we call it the GAL and I have in this podcast explained like the acronyms behind adoption and foster care. And so talk a little bit about the GAL. Okay. The guardian ad litem is a court appointed attorney and that attorney is appointed to uh, represent what's in the best interest of the child, but also to represent what the child's preferences are and what the child's needs are. So in a case where you have a guardian ad litem and let's say the child's been abused and I think it's in the best interest of the child not to return to the parent and the child is either too young to have a preference on that or agrees that they don't want to go back, then I as guardian ad litem represent the best interest of the child to the court. If the child wants to go home, and I do not believe as the guardian it is in the child's best interest to go home because mom and dad, for example, may still be using meth and I know they can't go to that home, but the kid just desperately wants to go back. There is a provision under the law to also have an attorney ad litem appointed to represent the child. And that attorney ad litem advocates for what the child wants their preference, regardless of whether they think it's in your best interest. So I'm involved in a case right now, a termination of parental rights case, that I won't go into any details because of confidentiality, but I'm the guardian ad litem, so I'm representing what I think is in the child's best interest, and I ask for an attorney ad litem who's advocating for what the child wants. The guardian ad litem and the attorney ad litem both had to do an independent investigation. You had to review the court file. You had to look at all the medical records, all the psychological records, everything. You have to talk to the children if they're old enough to communicate about the case. You have to interview parents if their attorneys will allow you to, and you had to talk to DCS. So you had to fully investigate, and then you act as an attorney. You call witnesses, you cross-examine witnesses, you submit evidence on behalf of either the child's best interest as the guardian ad litem or the child's preference as an attorney at Lottom. Interesting. Okay. The next question is one of those um, kind of rumor things you hear spinning around the internet. And somebody wanted to know, in foster care, are the biological families asked to pay child support? And if so, who receives this child support? 
The statute specifically says that when children are in the custody of the Department of Children's Services, whether they're dependent, neglected, delinquent, or unruly, that the parents are liable for child support. That child support is paid to the state of Tennessee and um, continues to be at least attempted to be collected because many parents don't pay child support as long as the child remains in DCS custody unless parental rights are terminated. And then at that point, if it's an involuntary termination, they are no longer liable for the child support. The consequences of not paying for it, the biggest one from my point of view as a adoption attorney is that failure to pay child support for four consecutive months is grounds for termination of parental rights. Also, if you have a court order for child support, and you don't have to have a court order for child support to have the duty to support. The law presumes that all adults know of their duty to support their children, and that duty exists without a court order. But if there is a court order and you don't pay child support, then you could be held in contempt and you could be actually thrown in jail until you make payments on your child support. Now, there is one caveat right now with, as many of you know, the Tennessee Supreme Court has stopped in-person court hearings on non-essential emergency hearings are going to still go forward. Uh, Certain hearings will still go forward. So right now, if you don't pay your child support, you might get a, you know, one of those uh, free jail passes you get in Monopoly (laughs) because we don't need to be filling our uh, jails up right now when we can't go to court to resolve it. But you do have that possibility of being held in contempt and and being put in jail until you pay your child support. So just to make sure I completely understand, DCS will recommend immediately that biological families with children in foster care pay child support, but it seems like maybe it's not like a serious issue until the court order is issued for child support? It's not that they recommend it. Every child that comes into foster care, they have child welfare benefit workers who are employees of the Department of Children's Services, and their job is to enter them in the system, the child support system. And then the DA's office has child support offices and attorneys who pursue the child support. It's required by law, so it's not a recommendation. It gets forwarded to them. Uh, They then try to track down the parent, determine if they're disabled, They uh, may be exempt from paying it. They may not uh, pursue it. Uh, They may not be able to locate the parent to get them served, but they will pursue it. So it's not a recommendation. It's a requirement in every single case. It is at least referred for collection to the child support office. Okay. So then I guess I'm confused what changes when a court order would be issued. The ability to be held in contempt if you don't pay. Oh, okay. If I don't have a court order ordering you to pay, even though the statute says you have this duty to pay child support for any of your children. Even though you have that statutory duty, you can't be held in contempt until there's an order telling you to do it. So without an order, your parental rights can still be terminated because you didn't pay child support for four consecutive months, but you can't be thrown in jail until you violate an order. Okay, that makes more sense. That's so it's the contempt. It's the contempt that would require the order. Okay, um, another one of those rumor mill things that I read about on Facebook. Um, a topic that's often discussed in foster parent groups is the fact that foster parents are told that they're not allowed to hire an attorney to fight against a decision that has been made by DCS. So does this also apply to agency foster parents? Is it accurate at all? Does it ever happen? What is the deal with that? Okay, the department. Of Children's Services is the agency that holds custody of foster children. Even if you have, uh, they they have foster homes, but they also contract with uh, both for-profit and non-profit uh, groups to provide foster homes as well. Whenever the child is in DCS custody, you sign a contract that agrees that you will not file a petition on these children. 
unless you have the permission from the department to file a uh, adoption petition. That is a contractual agreement. There is also something called the Foster Parents Bill of Rights. It doesn't say Bill of Rights, it just says Foster Parent Rights. It gives a, a number of rights to foster parents to be involved in the case, know what's going on in the case, and it has appeal process. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To go from your case manager to the supervisor to the regional administrator and then on to DCS central office if you disagree with what's being done in your child's case. It is silent as to whether or not you can hire an attorney. Now, you can consult an attorney at any time. There's nothing wrong with consulting an attorney. You have to be careful to not violate confidentiality, but an attorney is going to hold the matters you discuss with them confidential. Generally speaking, you will not hire an attorney until you're told we're ready to go forward with an adoption. Go ahead and get an attorney, although you may consult with one. But occasionally, foster parents get frustrated with DCS because they're not moving towards termination or they're moving to returning home when parents are still abusing drugs or there are issues going on. And occasionally, DCS will even say, hey, you know, we're not going to be able to get around to this. Will you file it? So there, it's not common, but occasionally foster parents do file petitions to terminate parental rights and to adopt. And the courts have upheld what's called their standing to do that. Standing means you have the right to be in that lawsuit. I'm not aware of any repercussions from DCS for violating the contractual agreement that they will not file any sort of lawsuit regarding the the foster children placed in their home. So that does happen occasionally. I would just say be very, very careful because you have signed a contract saying you will not file anything. Um, You also have signed an agreement not to violate confidentiality, so be very, very careful about it. When I represent foster parents and adoptions, Oh, let me back up for a second, because there are two times that it's absolutely clear that, yes, foster parents are entitled to an attorney. If the department indicates you for child abuse or neglect, you can appeal that indication, have an administrative hearing, which I have a lot of experience in also, and you are absolutely entitled to an attorney to represent you in that, and they're entitled to full discovery. The other thing is once the child's been placed in your home for a year as a foster parent, uh, you have a preference to, to keep that child in the home and to adopt the child. 
if DCS removes the child from your home, gives you notice that they intend to remove the child from your home, you're entitled to appeal and have an administrative hearing on that as well. And you are absolutely entitled to be represented by counsel in that. And the standard that the administrative tribunal looks at is what's in the child's best interest for those. With the adoption, frequently DCS says, oh, okay, we're getting ready to do the TPR. Go ahead and start thinking about the attorney you want to hire. And, and they'll call me up and say, hey, we want you to do our adoption. Yet termination of parental rights is not completed. Generally speaking, I can't get any information from DCS on the case, although I can usually say, hey, they want me to do the adoption. Once the TPR is final and they're in full guardianship, will you give me the information I need for the adoption? But usually the TPR order has to be signed by the judge, filed with the clerk. That's when your 30-day appeal period runs and that 30-day appeal period has to be up. However, sometimes when my foster parents know that a child has special needs, they want to go ahead and get me. And even though DCS will not give me information, I can prod them and talk to them and say, hi, um, my clients have a child who's legally blind in their home. This child is going to qualify for special needs adoption assistance. Can we go ahead and start collecting the um, justification forms that are needed from the uh, medical providers and the therapy providers so we can start getting the special needs or extraordinary needs adoption assistance in place in advance. So there are some things an attorney can do before you've been given that uh, official, yes, go ahead, the kid's in full guardianship. We're ready to place with you for adoption. Get your adoption attorney on board. I'm glad you brought up the foster parent rights. You said the foster parent rights because I've always heard of them as the foster parent bill of rights um, because I think that might be an important topic for the future because I've found that many foster parents don't even know that this exists, that this document exists. And I've seen it. We went to a Davidson County Foster Care Association meeting where they explained it in detail. And I thought that was very helpful. So maybe in the future, I'll go over that. Because I think they're off the top of my head. It's a statute. It's not just a document. It is a Tennessee law. And I'm thinking there are like 25 provisions in it. So it would take a while to go through all of them. But it is in the Tennessee code that sets out in the title under the Tennessee code is just foster parent rights. So the Bill of Rights is something that we just use in in talking about it. It's not titled that in the code. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that would be a good one to at least talk about or, you know, get into in a little bit more detail at some point, I think. And you have uh, foster parent advocates, too, who are trained to uh, to advocate for foster parents. That would be a good person to get in to, to talk about that. And you could have an attorney and an advocate who, you know, could explain their various roles and issues with that. Absolutely. So in the foster care setting, you talked a little bit about TPR, which stands for terminating parental rights. Am I saying that right? Termination of parental rights, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> if the biological parents' rights are terminated for one child, does this affect their future children or other biological biological siblings currently in foster care as well. Only in one way. There is a provision. The Department of Children's Services, by statute, is required to make reasonable efforts to assist parents in overcoming the problems that necessitated foster care so they can get the kids back. And the statute very specifically requires those reasonable efforts. If parental rights have been involuntarily terminated on a parent, the department is relieved of that duty to make reasonable efforts to return the child. So if uh, DCS, and we'll just say, terminates parental rights on a little girl named Anne, and then there's a little boy, we'll make it a boy instead of another girl, named Alex, who comes along afterwards, 
because Anne's parental rights are terminated, they don't have to make reasonable efforts on Alex. They could move quickly towards termination of parental rights, but they would still have to prove one of the grounds for termination of parental rights. So reasonable efforts is the only difference. You have to have grounds on each individual child to terminate parental rights and also a finding that it's in the child's best interest. So you could have, let's say a parent has been found to have committed severe child abuse. That's your grounds for termination of parental rights on Anne and Alex. However, maybe it's not in Alex's best interest to terminate parental rights. You can't prove that. So you could actually have a sibling group where the court in one proceeding terminated on one child and did not terminate on the other child because they did not find termination was in that child's best interest. I've not had that happen, but it is a possibility that could occur. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, that was another question. I think I asked that question in a Facebook group and I got every answer on any side of the scale. Nobody really seemed to know. So I'm glad you cleared that up. Thank you. Uh, Back to the world of adoption. Many people know that adoptive parents are not allowed to give money or gifts to a birth mother that are not approved expenses. So what expenses are approved and does this also apply to other bio family members? So, for example, in our situation, could I give money or gifts to the biological grandmother, for example? Okay, Tennessee statute clearly makes it illegal to buy and sell children in the state of Tennessee. And that's true all over the country. However, it recognizes that sometimes some expenses are needed. Now, you said gifts. No, you don't give gifts to someone. That could be interpreted as buying a child. You know, I'm going to pay for your medical expenses, the birth expenses. I'll pay your housing while you're pregnant, transportation to, to medical appointments, food, paternity clothes. All of those are legal expenses that you can pay for but they have to be expenses that are incurred, not a gift or something in the future. So when you file your adoption, as you'll recall, you also sign an affidavit that is a disclosure of all the payments that have been made in an adoption, whether it was uh, sending $10 to the putative father to pay for the notary to sign the waiver of interest, or whether it was hiring a notary to go with you to get the denial of paternity from the legal father. See, you got to see all of these. You got to see a surrender, a (laughs) waiver, and a denial. So you got to see all of this. Or if it was paying for... um, you know, buying the the foster mother lunch or something while she's pregnant. You simply list all of that in your disclosure because those are legal expenses that you can pay, not just for the mother. It can include the uh, other family members if they're caring for the child and you're reimbursing expenses for the care of the child. You just have to be very, very careful because you don't want to have committed a crime buying and selling children. So a, a gift, I think, would be very, very suspect. And you might find yourself on the wrong side of the law, unless it's a family member that, you know, if grandma is adopting a grandchild and they give $1,000 to the child for their birthday every year, Christmas every year, that's different. That's not the same sort of thing. It's it's a normal uh, expenditure or gift you would do anyhow. Um, even after the adoption, though, anything that you gave the uh, mother, and most of the expenses you can reimburse are for the birth mother, not for the other family members, although you can reimburse for some expenses there. But even after the adoption is finalized, you would have to be very, very careful because you don't want it to look like you told them, hey, let us adopt the kid, and when it's all over, we'll give you $10,000 because that's buying a child and it's illegal and you you could go to jail. This is an important question because I will tell you the thought in my head was 
hey, it would be a nice gesture if I bought something nice for the birth mother, you know, as like a gift during her pregnancy or right after her birth or something. But after speaking to you at the time, I know that that is not acceptable and I shouldn't do that. So we didn't. But I will tell you, I did have that thought that it would be a really nice thing. I mean, we're working together very well and we get along very well. Maybe I should buy her like a little necklace to remind her of her son or, you know, something like that. And I guess I'm glad that I didn't. Well, and again, you have to look at whether it's something really of value. You cannot provide anything of value. A, a little locket with a picture in it that's not a valuable uh, necklace uh, might not be an issue. You certainly can provide them pictures of the child. Um, you might put together a photo album and you've obviously put a little money. You go buy the album. Well, th- they do it differently than when I used to do it. You used to buy the album and you used to put the pictures on each page. So, But you know, you might invest a little bit of money into something like that that would not be considered uh, um, something illegal. You just have to be extremely careful about what you do to make sure that it's not seen as paying in order to have the child for the adoption, whether it's before. And the approved expenses are expenses incurred. So a locket, a photo album would not be expenses occurred in the, so it would be something beyond it that you'd have to be careful about. But many, many adopted parents give photographs and even picture albums to to the birth family so that they have that connection um, still with the child and frequently ask the birth family to give them photos. So the child also has what DCS calls a life book that have pictures of grandma in them, biological grandma and cousins in them and, and that so that the child has the uh, that as well. So there's nothing wrong with pictures coming both ways. That's very interesting. And you talked a little bit about these rules and how they apply after an adoption is finalized. And I feel that this situation is quite common as well, where after the adoption is finalized, the birth mother comes to the adoptive parents and says, hey, I'm really struggling right now. Can I have a couple bucks or can I have a little bit of money? But from what I'm understanding, you still need to be very careful at that point. I think you need to be very careful because you do not want allegations that you're trying to skirt the law on buying a child. Interesting. Okay. Where they come back later on. So, I mean, it, it becomes a, a much more difficult uh, question because sometimes with a parent who is living on the edge of society and poverty, and so many of these families are, I mean, we have a tremendous poverty problem in this country. We need to be open about that. And, and people sometimes through no fault of their own are, are living on the margin and have a difficult time. And that's frequently why people give up their children for adoption is they simply can't afford to take care of themselves, much less a child. So, you know, that's going to be an issue or a problem. Um, I think I would uh, consult an attorney about the individual uh, circumstances just to make sure you don't end up on the wrong side of the law. Yeah, good advice for sure. Let's talk about being matched. This is another big one. I see this discussed all the time. A lot of prospective adoptive parents are worried about being matched and then the birth mother changing her mind and deciding to parent or go another route. What are the timelines in which a birth mother can legally change her mind after being matched? Like I already said, if the birth mother or the birth father surrenders their parental rights, they're in Tennessee, and this varies from state to state, but in Tennessee, they have three judicial days to revoke that surrender. Once the three days are up, that surrender is final, unless there was fraud or duress or something, and then they can go back and ask for it to be set aside through a legal proceeding. But that's rare. That doesn't usually happen. So they can't basically change their mind once they've surrendered. If they do a consent, instead of a surrender. they And that's why usually consents are only done with a relative adopting. They can change their mind up until the time the adoption is finalized. I have been involved with people who have gone through two 
disrupted adoptions where they invested quite a bit of money, thought they had a, a match with a child, and the parents changed their mind. And now they want to know, well, what can I do to make sure it doesn't happen this time? And of course, the only way not to have the expense is to be a foster parent. You could still lose the child. The child could be returned to the parent or returned or given to a relative, but uh, at least you don't have the expense. There are on the internet adoption disruption insurance policies. Some agencies, uh, and you can see in the fee schedule on the DCS website, will list that they will refund a certain amount of their fee if the adoption disrupts before finalization. Again, if you get insurance, it's upon you to make sure it's legitimate. Just because the insurance is, is advertised, most of the ones that I've seen, it's through the agency. They do some sort of policy themselves so that you get a partial refund, at least through the agency if it disrupts. But you could be out tens, twenties, thirty thousand dollars very, very easily and not have a child. So you said that in Tennessee, if a birth parent voluntarily surrenders his or her rights, the timeline generally for them to change their mind is three days. Do you know if that's kind of standard? In Tennessee, it's three judicial days. So you exclude weekends and holidays. It's okay. days the court is open. So if you surrender on Friday, you don't count Saturday and Sunday. You start counting Monday as one, two, three, Wednesday. By the close of business on Wednesday, you have to revoke that surrender. You have to go back to the judge or if you're incarcerated, the warden who did the surrender and you have to f- complete a form that revokes it in that period. After that third judicial day, it becomes final. Okay. Do you have any idea how that can to other states? Are there other states that have a much longer time period or other states that have a shorter time period? Do you have any idea? It just varies so much. The procedure for, uh, in Tennessee, you go before a judge or a warden if they're in a penitentiary. In some states, you can surrender before a notary. There's just too much variance from state to state to give you anything. In Tennessee, it's three judicial days. So exclude weekends and holidays. Any day of the date, date, the court is closed. Which brings up a very interesting question, since we have the Tennessee Supreme Court rule that we won't have in hearing, uh, you know, can you do a surrender and does that time for revocation run? So that's not something I thought about until right now. That is interesting. Huh. Wow. So if I'm a person and I'm hoping to adopt, I'm not a foster parent. I don't know anybody who's pregnant or willing to place their child for adoption. What's the best place for me to start? What do you think I'm going to say? The DCS website. No, the DCS website. DCS has information to help you get started on private adoptions as well. It's not just foster care adoption. They have the the manual. Go through and read all the information they have on adoption. They even have information on international adoptions on their website, even though DCS doesn't do international. They license the agency. So that's going to give you a really good start. There are websites like Adopt Us Kids, uh, which DCS uses and is a legitimate website. There's another website DCS uses Heart Gallery, which is a legitimate website where you can see pictures, sometimes videos uh, for the child and and get to know the child that way. So you have legitimate sites. You also have sites that aren't legitimate and sites that are scams. So you have to be very, very careful about where you go. Agencies. So um, 
uh, Harmony does a, a, a website as well where they do videos of children. And other agencies that are licensed to do adoptions may have websites, may have galleries that you can go to and look for them. Make sure you're going to a legitimate source, something that you know is legitimate and looking for children. Um, DCS uses Adopt Us Kids both by putting the kids out there. Uh, they, they put a picture of the kid. They put a very short bio on the kids on there. They all sometimes put videos that the kids make. And you from anywhere in the country can contact the number in, um, that the child's assigned and say, hey, I'm interested in this child and, and start going through the process to see if you can be selected to adopt them. DCS can also do what's called a reverse search. So you can sign up on Adopt Us Kids and say, hey, I'm interested, but I only want kids under the age of five. Or As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply or I only want kids with these special needs, but not these special needs. They can go through and find families all over the country that are willing to take children that have the needs that match the child they're trying to do it. So so it works both ways. I know the agency that you suggested I use, um, Adoption Assistance Incorporated, also now that I'm signed up with them and they've done my home study, they send me emails pretty much every day that say, hey, here's a pregnant woman and she's interested in placing her child for adoption. Here are all the details. It even lists out the estimated fees. And I get those all the time, all the time. So that's very interesting. And they are a licensed agency in Tennessee, a licensed adoption agency. So using them, you have the protection of the laws and regulations of the state of Tennessee. Well, and also sometimes I notice at the top of the email, it says if you've paid some of the fees and then the adoption doesn't end up happening, you'll get X amount back. Yes. It says that a lot of times. Some do that. Some agencies don't do that. So you just, again, if you're going to build a house, you're not going to just say, hey, go build me a house. You're going to have a contract. You're going to go over it very carefully. You're going to look into all the details. Uh, you have to do the same thing in retaining an adoption agency to do an adoption. Make sure it's transparent. Make sure you get all the information you need. Make sure they're reputable and make sure they're licensed. What are your thoughts on hopeful adoptive families advertising themselves on social media? And are there rules around this? Do the rules vary by state? The rule or law, it, it varies by state. Rules don't <laughs> matter. Rule. Rules don't matter. There is There are specific statutory laws. So in Tennessee, we have a statute that allows licensed adoption agencies, attorneys, and prospective adopted parents to advertise for placement of a child for adoption. So we have a very specific statute that allows that in Tennessee for those people. An unlicensed agency can't advertise in Tennessee. 
So you can do an ad in Tennessee, but, and I think this is correct, I think Texas is one of the states that does not allow advertising at all. If you live in Tennessee, you can advertise here, but you can't advertise, so you can't take an ad out in the paper in Texas. Okay. Now, I am not an expert on social media. I don't know. You'd have to hire an expert in social media because if you advertise on Facebook, for example, that goes out to people all over the country. I don't know whether or not if that goes to someone in Texas, that would violate, assuming I'm correct and it is still illegal there. I know at one point it was illegal to advertise. If it's still illegal there, if you're, you know, have violated their statutes. So don't ask me that question. If you're going to advertise on social media, find a attorney who specializes in social media advertising and could look at the very specific laws. But in Tennessee, you can post an ad in the newspaper or on a radio station. The normal ways people advertise, if you're a licensed agency, a prospective adoptive parent, the department could do it, but they don't need to. Or an attorney, an adoption attorney could do it. Have you ever seen anybody buy a bill board with their face on it? No, I haven't. But that is advertising. I guess you could do it. We may do that. I don't know. Just make sure we'll do it in Tennessee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sometimes I'll see second chance adoptions. Can you elaborate on second chance adoptions? Basically, that's an adoption that after finalization has disrupted. Um, DCS, uh, not often, but occasionally, has children who've been adopted, and usually it's special needs children, behavioral problems, and it's just too much for the family to deal with, and they will surrender the child back to DCS. I have personal knowledge of those being successful in the next adoption that's gone down the, the road for those children. Sometimes it's not that there's anything wrong with the foster family, the adoptive family. The child has special needs and they just can't deal with them, whereas another family could deal with those special needs. So that can be successful. There are also private agencies that do, I I don't know that I would say they specialize in second chance adoptions, but they they do those in addition to their other adoptions. Again, it's a disrupted adoption. The private agencies, usually the adoptive parents come to them and say, hey, this isn't working. We just cannot continue to be the parent of this child. They usually charge the adoptive parents a fee. And then the prospective adoptive parents that they match with are also paid a fee. The adoptive parents would surrender their parental rights either to an agency or directly to the prospective adoptive parents who then could adopt the child. You had to have the home studies, all the other requirements of an adoption, whether it's the child's first adoption or not. But after adopting a child, you can surrender that child back to DCS, to a private agency, or directly to SOAP. Like an example of something where absolutely nobody's involved. Let's say grandma adopts and grandma's getting older and she adopted a child who was just a year old at the time and suddenly grandmother's health has turned bad. So they decide that uh, the child's aunt will adopt the child. So grandma could surrender directly to her daughter, the child's aunt, and then that daughter could adopt. So that would be one where it's absolutely no one's fault. It's just a matter of, you know, age and changes in medical needs and and abilities would make it necessary to do a second adoption. Yeah, that makes sense. I would imagine that may be a fairly common sort of scenario when it comes to second chance adoptions. And that's one thing you can't do. A grandma and an aunt can't adopt together. You have to be a married couple or or at least a cohabitating uh, couple that is in a relationship as though they were married, even though they're, they're not legally married. Some judges won't allow that. Others will. But I've had situations where, you know, grandma says, well, I want I want to adopt, but I really need my, my daughter to adopt with me because I'm old and I don't 
know if I can do that. You can't do that. One would have to adopt and then the other would would have to do a second adoption if that person could no longer care for the child. Okay. Interestingly enough, there was a video that popped up on Netflix yesterday. I was just sitting at home scrolling on the TV and it was like trending number two in the United States, this movie on Netflix yesterday. And I only watched like the first 20 minutes of it. So I don't know what ended up happening really. But the situation was there was a married couple who had a baby and then they passed away in a car accident. And they had, I guess, left the custody of their child to two of their friends who were not married, not in a relationship, didn't even get along with each other. So you're saying that couldn't actually happen. In Tennessee, well, no, you could leave. You could give custody to the person. You could give custody to unmarried, not cohabitating individuals. Okay. But just like you can have a mom and a dad who don't live together, but they both have custody rights to the child. Under Tennessee law, they cannot adopt. Okay. Is what I'm saying. Understood. Interesting. Both of them. One could, but not both of them together. One could adopt and both of them together could not adopt, you're saying? Yes. Interesting. Although they could live together. Um, A mother-daughter could live together. They could parent the child together, um, but they could not both adopt. Okay. Okay. Cool. So let's talk about international adoption a little bit. How is it different from domestic adoption? And what are the first steps if that's something I'm interested in? Night and day. (laughs) First step Go to the DCS website. I I think this is one that we need to write down. (laughs) www. now I can't remember. <laughs> tn.gov forward slash DCS and go to that fee schedule directory because it lists the licensed agencies that do international adoptions as well. The other thing is it also has a tab for international adoptions that includes the Secretary of State's uh, website page for the Hague Convention for Adoptions. The Hague Convention is a treaty between countries, and that's the safest way to adopt, is where the U.S. has a treaty with the other country governing the adoption. Um, You can adopt from a country that is not part of the treaty, but just like wanting to have a license agency because you get the protection of the laws and regulations of the state, With the Hague Convention, you get the protections of the laws and regulations of the United States and the other country in adoption. So you have two things there. Go to that secretary, and this is the U.S. Secretary of State's uh, office that has the Hague Convention thing, but your link is on the DCS page (laughs) under adoptions. Go there, read through it all, and, and look at it very, very carefully. Then look at the agencies that do international adoptions, and they'll set out their fees and, and, and what they do uh, for you and what they won't be able to do for you. Figure out which ones you might want to talk to, call them up, and talk to them in more detail. An international adoption can take years particularly if it's a Hague Convention country because of the, I mean, there's red tape with regulations, but there's also protection there. One that's not a party to the Hague Convention, maybe you can get through in less than a year, but you may not have an adoption that's valid in the state of Tennessee or the United States. So, you know, you run those risks when you, when you go outside the Hague Convention. When you adopt with a country through the Hague Convention, you get a IR or IH3 visa, and you adopt in the other country, when you come back to this country, when they enter this country, the child, because they're your adopted child and you're U.S. citizens, becomes a U.S. citizen. If it's a non-Hague Convention country where the adoptions in that country don't meet the standards to, to qualify here, the child would come back into the U.S. with a IR4 or IH4 visa 
and you would have to readopt in Tennessee in order for that child to get citizenship. Now, even with the IR3 or IH3 visa that you get through the Hague Convention adoption, you may want to readopt here simply because you can readopt in Tennessee after adopting, let's just say China, because that's the number one country where children come from that for international adoptions right now in this point in time. Well, right now they're not happening, but uh, before in, in 2019 and before. Uh, you may want to readopt here because you'll have a foreign birth certificate. If you readopt in Tennessee, the Tennessee uh, Department of Health Vital Records will issue a, a foreign decree of birth for you. So you have a nice legal looking English document. Uh, and not just your foreign document that you couldn't read if you wanted to. And the schools they want to go to can't read and everything else. So readoption in, even if you adopt in the other country, a readoption in the United States can be helpful for that purposes, even if your adoption in the other country is valid. You could do a whole segment on foreign international adoptions. It's, it's a very complex, very time consuming and very expensive. Oh, my goodness. So you said China has been the number one country where families adopt from here in the United States. Off the top of your head, do you know a couple of the other popular ones? The um, countries where we have the most international adoptions uh, for the least recent years are Ukraine, Jamaica, Ethiopia and China. China is considered the easiest country to adopt in, and that's because they have a very stable and predictable program. You have um, countries that you could adopt from in the past that no longer have the, the status where you can bring the children back into the country. So you have to go to the Secretary of State's website, to the Hague Convention website, and look at the country that you're, you're thinking about adopting from to make sure that you are going to be able to bring that child back to this country. With some particularly third world countries, unstable countries, that status can change from time to time, and you have to be up to date on, on whether or not you can bring a child in. Okay. So you talked a little bit before about websites like Adopt Us Kids and the other one I think you said Heart was the Gallery. Heart Gallery. So and because we kind of got into this, I'll just have you elaborate if you don't mind. Well, the question is, are these websites legitimate? And you said, you know, some of them will be and some of them are not, but the two that you mentioned definitely are. Do you see adoptions actually happen through these websites? And are there any others? How can we tell if these websites are legitimate? Anything that you would like to add on those those type of websites? Adopt Us Kids, Heart Gallery are very legitimate. And yes, as I serve as, in addition to doing adoptions, I'm appointed to serve as guardian litem for children. And the children get posted on them. We find adoptive homes as guardian ad litem. I go through the selection process on them. So I've seen potential homes from all over the country on a child that I represent. So yes, they do work. If it's a gallery for a licensed adoption agency, then I think you can trust it. If not, I think you just have to be very, very careful on what you trust and what you don't trust. I don't, off the top of my head, I can't list any other uh, galleries that I know are legitimate. The Department of Children's Services works with Harmony, and Harmony does videos. I uh, was in a video with one of the children I'm guardian ad litem for. Uh, she clammed up on me and wouldn't talk, so I had to do most <laughs> of the talking and try to pull some stuff out of her and, and show her, you know, in her best light. I don't remember off the top of my head what they call theirs, but I know they're legitimate as well, and there are other legitimate ones out there that I just am not familiar with. Well, 
this was super incredibly helpful. I can't even tell you. I think my brain is full at this point. I might listen back to this episode four or five times and still miss some of it. So I want to thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to add maybe for hopeful adoptive parents or foster parents or people who are like maybe considering getting started on the process? Just anything you'd like to add at all? Yes. Once you adopt, think about updating your will. You can do a will that is a very simple will that just leaves everything to your spouse and your children. But in your will, you can also name guardians for your child. So none of us want to think of this, but as you mentioned, you could have the car wreck and, and both parents could be killed in a car wreck. And if you put it in your will, then you have some control, not absolute say over it because the courts could decide differently, but you have some control over who, who gets your uh, children. So, you know, if you prefer one set of grandparents over the others, don't tell them that, but you can name one as guardian and just explain, well, they're younger or something. Or if you have a sister or a brother or someone that you want to be the guardians for your children, if you both pass away, you can put that in your will. You can also put provisions in a will to set up a trust for your children so that the money is handled in a way where someone can't just blow through it all. And whatever you have in the way of life insurance or, or uh, investments or whatever you would be leaving for your child because you don't want your child to be poverty stricken because you both die. You want to have something there for your child to take care of them in case of that event. So see an attorney who specializes in wills and probate, who has expertise in that, and draw up a will after you adopt to make sure you take care of your kids and you know make sure you have life insurance that will take care of them as well. That's great advice. So I guess that leads me to my very, very last question for you. Do you help write wills? You know, I've done a few wills. I wrote my own will and my husband's <laughs> will. I can do very, very simple wills, but if you have a complex estate, you need to go to somebody who really specializes. In Tennessee, you have a lot of general practitioners who do a little bit of everything, and you might be the jack of all trades, but not the master. I'm a master in, in termination and parental rights and juvenile law, and, and I believe I'm an, a master in adoption law, but I'm not going to say I'm a master in wills and probate. I can do a simple will. Fair enough. Well, thank you for that. Before we wrap up, I do need to talk a little bit about our first giveaway. So on March 31st, a winner will be chosen to receive a Rocket Book Wave. And if you're not familiar with that, it's the first eco-friendly reusable notebook that's great for people like me and maybe like you who prefer to take notes using actual pen and paper. So you jot down your words or your sketches and you scan them into the Rocket Book app, which allows you to organize your entries on multiple platforms. So whatever you're currently using like Outlook, Evernote, and Google Drive. And then to erase the page and reuse it, you microwave the notebook. And just like that, it is brand new again. Entering the giveaway is super easy. There are just two steps. First, leave a written review on the Purple Apple Podcast app. Then go to the Barely Braided Instagram page, which is at Barely Braided Podcast. On the story highlight titled giveaway, reply with the username you used on Apple. And that's it. Just two steps. The winner will be chosen live on Instagram on Tuesday, March 31st. And if you'd like to accompany Company your review with five big fat stars. That would be great as well. A big thanks again to the Russell in East Nashville for letting us use this beautiful space. Visit www.russellnashville.com to book your stay. Thanks to Ruben Andrews, who is this week's podcast editor. And of course, thank you to Ann Austin. You are wonderful and you are so knowledgeable. And I'm so impressed by everything that you were able to share with us today. I think this episode will be super helpful. So big, 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 big thank you to you. It's been my pleasure. 
I like to teach. We are definitely grateful for it. Have a wonderful week and I will see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.